Hi Rachel, what are you doing? I've just put together episode 37 of the Lessons from Lost podcast. Wow, that's brilliant. Who are you talking to this week? A lovely lady called Laura Bridgens. And what's Laura's story? Well, she talks about the impact of discovering, after her father died, that she had been donor-conceived and he wasn't actually her biological father. Gosh, that must have been a real shock to the system. It was. Does a porcupine feature in this episode at all? Not a hint of one. Well, let's find out anyway. Hello and welcome to Lessons from Loss, the podcast in which we share our experiences of loss and more importantly, what we learn from them that now positively guides our lives today. I'm your host, Rachel Smith, and each episode I chat with a different guest. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the courage and vulnerability of all my guests in sharing their very personal stories and experiences, and also the impact that hearing these may have on you, the listener. Please take care as you listen. So today I'm delighted to be chatting with Laura Bridgens, who made a surprise discovery after her father died a few years ago that he was not her biological father. She had been conceived by an anonymous sperm donor. This revelation left her reeling with questions about her identity, the relationship she'd had with her parents, and a journey in finding out who her biological father is. Today, Laura is a leading campaigner and co-chair of the UK's Donor Conceived Register, using her voice and experience to challenge assumptions and advocate for the best possible outcomes for all donor conceived people. So welcome along, Laura. Hello. Oh, thank you so much for coming on to chat to me today about your experience, which of course is, you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing and very much a, a massive or has had such a massive impact on your life. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and this is becoming, you know, a more common occurrence, of course, with the rising availability and take up of online DNA testing with more and more mm-hmm. people finding out that, you know, one of their parents is not actually their biological father or mother. You know, I guess there's so many layers of loss to unpick. There's the, you know, the obvious loss of your dad when he died, of course. Mm-hmm. But then that resulting sort of loss of identity of who you thought you were, the loss of the relationship that you thought you had. And then, you know, looking on the other side, that sort of loss of, you know, the opportunity of the relationship with your biological father and, you know, and and half siblings that you could have had. And I'm sure probably many more sort of similar things will come out in the course of our conversation. Yeah. So it's such a complex Layering, there's so many nuances and, and subtleties to how this has impacted your life. And, and I'm sure with the, the lessons that you've learned and are learning from it all, that I think maybe the best place to start is, you know, what was the chain of events that led to this discovery? How did, how did this all come about? Well, yes, it's, <laughs> it's been quite a ride. So, um, so my dad died in 2018 my my dad's health problems are being quite complex um not helped by his heavy drinking um he declined in his early 50s um, and died at, at 67 it was not it was not expected he was blue lighted to to a and e um 
and and died in hospital two weeks later um and that in itself was was traumatic um it wasn't expected we were expecting him to to go home um I was in the talk of trying to you know with social workers to arrange extra care it just it it really was traumatic in its own (laughs) in its own in its own right absolutely um and my relationship with my dad had always been complex he um he didn't have a brilliant childhood um he was abused by his own mother um and and he was completely estranged from his family so i had never met anyone related to my dad um and neither had my mum oh gosh um, yeah so i I realise that I'm quite an extreme case in terms of um, I'd, I'd, I'd always had a um, a blank space on my paternal side of my family tree, and I had normalised that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was just the way things were. So um, I was an only child, um, and I only ever had one grandparent. That was my mum's mum, and she died when I was 21. So more than 20 years ago. Um, and my mum had one sister, has one sister, um, who is married but has no children. So I, I literally had a really tiny family. Um, and that was just the norm. There was nobody my age in, you know, there was no 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 one my generation in our family. Um, and I also never really asked my dad about his family. Um, he would, it just... You know what it's like in families. You just know when you can't ask yeah. things, and um, it just wasn't spoken about. Um, and I knew enough of the history to know to not really go there, especially if my dad's kind of complex health needs. Mm. Um. So, I mean, my dad was quite a storyteller. Um. So he and there were quite often quite tall stories, <laughs> um, but he would say things like. Uh, we were Italian or Spanish or Welsh or Romany Gypsy. And, and so I had these kind of ideas. Um, and I'd always wanted to kind of explore it. And, and I'd heard of these ancestry DNA tests, but never really made the connection to kind of do that thing. And then I was I read a book called Girl, Woman, Other. Um, and it has part of the the, the storyline involves um, one of the characters doing a DNA test and it just reminded me that it existed and it Mm -hmm. was a thing and I just thought ah I was quite heavily involved in um, personal development by this stage um, and was really kind of into sort of exploring who I was and um, and it just felt like a fun thing to do so this would have been two and a half years after I'd lost my dad um and yeah just put an ancestry dna test on my christmas list um and over the phone with my mum she had asked what i wanted quite a normal question what do you want for christmas yeah, and I, yeah. said, I wanted an ancestry dna test and in hindsight she went a little bit quiet <laughs> um and then christmas came around um it was that weird 2020 Christmas where we could all only see each other on Christmas. Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And um and my mum turned up and the ancestry test hadn't arrived 
which is what she said. I'm not sure that was quite the truth in hindsight, um, but she'd bought me something else to unwrap. And then we, you know, as a country went right back down into a really quite strong lockdown again. Um, and it wasn't until the February where mum came over um, and gave me the ancestry test with a letter. And then, um, yeah, she took, she proceeded to just tell me everything that was in the letter and, and, and tell me the truth um, about the fertility treatment that they, would, they had had. My parents had tried for me, tried to have me for four years unsuccessfully. Um, so I'd seek fertility treatment. That much I knew, weirdly. Okay. I did always know that they really struggled to have me and that, mm. um, and that it had taken four years. And I, I remember asking as a child about it, which is, in you know, hindsight, it's a wonderful thing, but yeah. I was saying, is that my real dad? And um, why is there any one of me? And, and I guess they're just inquisitive small children questions. But I do remember being told that I was the stage before test tube baby, but that my dad was my dad. Anyway, so, you know, the narrative at the time when, when I was conceived um, in late 1980 was that, you know, the doctors, so the men in white coats that you trust were, were telling soon-to-be parents that it was in the child's best interest not to tell them the truth of their origins, that, you know, they're in the business of making families, for want of a better word, and they wanted the man involved to um, not reject <laughs> the baby. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, there was a lot of smoke and mirrors at the time, and it was, you wanted a baby, you've got your baby, and just go, go away and be a family. You know, there was very much, you know, have sex before, have sex after. Um, it might be. And and actually, that's what my mum said to me on the day that she told me. She said, one of the reasons I've never told you is because I didn't want you to not know who your father was. And there was always a chance that he was your father. Mm. So there was a really strong belief that that was actually feasible. So that was interesting that, you know, there was still this possibility that he was yeah. my father. Did but you have any sense at that point? It's weird. I mean, I suppose your mind must have been I, reeling with the information. I had, I had, my whole life, I'd felt something was not, quite right but I couldn't quite put my finger on it but I'd, I'd put it down to I'd been moved from London to Suffolk when I was nine and I was really homesick and a lot of things I could kind of trace back to that kind of being pulled out of one environment and placed in another yeah. one that felt quite alien and I'd not really been able to bring it back any earlier but I'd clearly had the questions earlier than that so I don't know, and I guess I'll never know. And that was, that was one of the things that raced around my mind a lot at the time. Like, did did like you know my soul really know that something? And, and you do hear it, you do hear it a lot in sort of adoption circles and other people that um, have discovered that their parentage is not quite what they expected. That they kind of always had this knot of 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 knowing 
that mm. something was not quite but I guess as I say we may never know <laughs> yeah so it it turns out that you know I, I, I soon discovered that when my ancestry results came came back that he definitely was not my biological father and that initial discovery well it's like a it's like like a, a lot of this experience it's like a paradox so everything changes and nothing changes kind of all at once yeah. because you know my dad was my dad and and will always be my dad and my relationship with him was quite complex um it wasn't always easy but I know he loved me and he would tell me that, you know, he would hold my hand and look in my eyes and tell me how much he loved me. And he will always be my dad. But to also know that I have this other biological father and everything that comes with that in terms of, it just kind of opened up this whole new world because it's not because some people that are a donor conceived have have the you know the paternal family line that they thought was theirs, and then that's they have to re relearn that that's not your genetic family line. Mm. I didn't ever have that. I always had that blank space on my paternal yeah. side, so I'd kind of always been living a little bit off center yeah. in that sense. In that where I was anchored in my kind of those links to my ancestors had always all been from my mother's side. Mm -hmm. And and that side of my mum's family tree is really well researched. The family is all known. Lots of family members have researched way back to royalty, nonetheless, King George, the one that went oh. mad. Um, so I'd always, I don't know, I think maybe there'd been enough stories on that side and enough family get togethers on that side to to me not to quite notice but yes. now I was presented with this information which in itself had I you know because I've never had this information but to learn I was 46% Scottish <laughs> and um had all these kind of surnames and and people on my paternal side coming up on my ancestry nothing particularly close third, fourth cousin kind of matches. Um, but I was really lucky that one of those third, fourth cousin matches was really into genealogy. And he had a, a massive family tree, sort of 5,000 strong on his account. And he could tell from my DNA matches roughly what family line I'd come from mm. um, and I think we shared a kind of a great 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 grandmother or something like that um, and there were nine siblings and his great great grandmother was one of them and mine was another but beyond that we were a little bit stuck but even that that kind of rich kind of knowing having these stories of, of towns that mm. um, my family had, had been from these names some of them had faces you know and and being able to kind of really go down some rabbit holes and and search about these people and what kind of lives they'd lived and it just felt really enriching and so kind of validating to even know this about myself 
because you know being half almost half Scottish is quite a strong heritage yes isn't it? <laughs> absolutely I've never been to Scotland I've never been so for me oh it have you not <laughs> still haven't been um but that just even that was like ah oh, okay and it's as if I hadn't realized what grounding kind of kind of identity that would give me and it's yeah and so it is this kind of you don't miss what you don't have but then this is also the kind of information that lots of people take for granted yes so, I mean if it had stopped there I would have been grateful that's all I really set out to to find was you know, a little bit of information about, you know, whether my dad's stories of, of being Italian, Spanish or Roman Gypsy were, were true. And obviously I've got a lot more than I bargained for, but I did get those answers and I did get that that pie chart telling me I was 46% Scottish and, and all the other things. Obviously didn't stop there. <laughs> and that's a lot, isn't it? Even that, even just that. Um, Massive. <laughs> I then started to realize what I lost by being conceived in that way. I was still very much in, in the seeking phase of, of learning about myself. So there was lots of going down rabbit holes and then pausing and regrouping and then grieving and then feeling guilty about exploring all of this because my dad was no longer here and you know there was so much going on yeah and I mean that must have been having quite an impact on your mum as well at that point was it yeah. how was your relationship coming yeah. out with her and um, my mum's been brilliant the whole way through this and we've been able to be quite open uh we both had counselling through the donor conceived register because that's that's we're offered free counselling through that project and we both used that. Um, we both just tried to talk to each other a lot. And I decided quite early on that I would that I would not shield her from my emotions, from how I was feeling about it, because I wasn't always okay. Um, yeah. And I figured that that would be a better way to move through this than me just putting on the yeah I'm fine everything's fine I'm okay mask <laughs> because I really wasn't quite a lot of the time because it's it's weird and I try and explain it in a kind of um a bit of a metaphor really it's a bit like and I've got a few metaphors <laughs> so it's a bit like a Jenga tower and somebody's just taken those those bottom bricks out you just become your whole being your whole identity just becomes really unstable yeah um or another metaphor that's quite um quite well used in kind of personal development terms in in kind of learning something about yourself is like another layer of the onion and again this was another layer of the onion but what I'd also discovered is that that seed was not the seed that I thought it was that had grown mm. that onion so it, it kind of just it's like putting on another pair of glasses or something or just everything, just the, you, the lens that you see everything in just completely changes. So you start of to just course, yeah. look back at your whole life with a slightly different nuanced view. Mm. And as you say, they're new glasses. And, and you know, if you, if you do wear glasses, you know, those first 
certainly when you when you walk out the you know the opticians or wherever you've got them from you walk down the street for that first time everything's just like whoa this all feels a bit different and discombobulated is the word it's really discombobulated yeah that's a good word it's 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 like some of your identity and it's 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 simple stuff like my mum is five foot two with blue eyes quite petite so is her sisters quite petite with blue eyes her mother quite petite with blue eyes I'm five foot seven dark eyes dark hair <laughs> my dad was six foot four with dark eyes and dark hair I thought I looked like my dad yeah, like, yeah. my height came from being sort of somewhere between my mum and my dad. Mm. Um, I thought I had the same blood type as my dad. And there's all these kind of things that you just sort of say about yourself. You probably don't. I mean, it's not even a case of making them fit because you have no reason to suspect otherwise. No, no. And I remember when I first told my husband about all of this and he's like, no way, you look just like your dad. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's those little things that you've kind of built your Mm. whole existence around are now not quite what you thought they were so it's yeah it is just a really weird kind of situation to find yourself in and it's it's weird because it's it's quite disenfranchised I think a lot of people don't understand the enormity of it and I think that that makes it hard because it is like grief in a lot of ways because you, you're grieving who you thought you were. Yeah. And also you've got like a, there's this, this, this loss of identity and the potential loss of another father again, because you've gone through the grief process of losing your dad. And then suddenly there's another version the the choice of language in the donor conceived world is very difficult and it's so hard to kind of get the language right but this man is my biological father so the thought of you know seeking this man and and everything that he is and finding out that he's no longer here or or having to lose him in a few years is was another thing that was just sort of weighing on me and but I suppose also the, the the possibility that there would be rejection or yeah. sort of denial. Oh, yeah. I mean, that must have been a, a massive that, thing as well. Absolutely. It's 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 one of those it's it's one of the great kind of unfairnesses that I feel in and that I see for donor conceived individuals and why I've spent quite a lot of time since my discovery learning and 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 meeting others that are in the same situation and eventually becoming the chair of the donor conceived register here in the UK myself and um just launched a consultation to to set up a a charitable organization that represents donor conceived people and those affected by donor conception practices in the UK so that's all a busy project that I'm I've undertaken now and because it is so common that people in my situation are rejected the shutters go down you know donors 
feel that they, you know, they were promised anonymity and that should be upheld. Yeah. And there's also, um, there's a slight, I think people, people try and say the right thing to you. You know, when anything happens to somebody, people, people quite often have good intentions, but some things are just not quite understood in terms of what the impact of, of a discovery like this can have. You know, like, oh, but you, you know, your dad's always going to be your dad. It's like, yeah, I know. That's, you know, I don't need that reassurance. Yeah. I'm glad it was complex, but I'm not, this is, this is not a parenting kind of scenario. This is a, a genetic truth. And there's also the, you know, the fact that you have been lied to in and and again that sounds harsh and and I completely understand the narrative was different back then and I don't think my parents set out to lie to me but it is an untruth that I've built my life on and that does take its toll in terms of wow (laughs) that was a really big thing about me that I did I did not know that but that others did and I think that the other thing that I've spoken a lot up to donor conceived people about this. And I think, I mean, in my experience is that um, I was donated via sperm donation and obviously there is egg donation as well. Um, so my perspectives always come from, from us being sperm donated. It's quite easy. And I think, you know, for a man to give his sperm, it's not, it's, it's, it's quite straightforward, mm. almost too easy. And therefore the, the idea of that becoming a human is yes, a it's, abstract. Yeah, yeah, um, I get that, yeah. And there's definitely a history of the, of the industry medicalizing this human tissue, this, this sperm, so that it becomes the kind of paternalized and it is just almost medicine that you give to an infertile couple so that they can have a baby. Mm. And I think that's, I feel from the kind of conversations I have with people that don't have experience of this is that that's kind of what's in the public kind of understanding of what sperm donation is, is that it's donation and it's altruistic, which I'm not denying, but it isn't, like donating blood or an organ it yes is- that's what I was playing was going around in my mind when you were talking <clears> about that I thought god you know it's very or possibly very similar in terms of you know how perhaps they see it from a medicalized point of view as well mm-hmm. you know you give blood you give sperm you know it's just a, a medical process sort of thing that you go through but yeah implications are yeah yeah and it's intergenerational as well so it's you know I have two daughters and um I mean we've not touched yet on the fact that I found my biological father really lucky I I found him only took me about six months and that was partly because of me needing to rest and wait in between each kind of new thing that I found out but um, I, I, I gained some strengths to upload my DNA um, onto a different website, 
myheritage.com and I got a first cousin match, which is big in my world because I, don't yeah. have, I didn't even have any cousins. And I think that's, you know, for somebody that's only got one surviving parent, has never had any cousins <laughs> and only ever had one grandparent who, who died 20 years ago. I'm, you know, I don't have a big family. So even, a, I even, you know, the thought of a cousin was exciting for yes. me. Yes, yeah. Um, and I gave this cousin name, cousin's name to my third cousin match on Ancestry. And within half an hour, he kind of pointed out where on his family tree this cousin was. And then that cousin had a mum who had two sisters and a brother. And we were looking for a man. So I was very lucky in that quite quickly found the man and his name and then you know a quick google search I managed to find him online and it but it did take me another six months to write a letter mm. to him um oh, what was going through your mind when you were when you kind of saw that section of the family tree for the first time and and realized that you know that was your part of your biological family that you never knew existed yeah it just validation and just it's kind of it's what we seek it's that those kind of anchors you know even though I'd always been a bit untethered having this blank space on my paternal side I'd felt more so with the not knowing that knowing these people were out there and I didn't know where they were um, so yeah, I could then see their stories, and I did some researching on on that line going back, and sort of worked out some family stories and things like that. And um, yeah, it was really lovely, but very private and very mm. precious and fragile. And I didn't want anyone to take that away. So the rejection and my idea of who this man was and the, and, and the living members of the family, who they were, I kind of needed to keep them into a, in a bit of a fantasy for a while to protect myself while I processed what all of this meant. So yeah, it was it was there was definitely comfort from seeing this family tree, but. Yeah, I mean, I started writing the letter quite soon, but there were many versions of that letter, many, many versions. And I eventually plucked up the courage. Um, I'd found an address, which I sh I think I thought was still valid. Didn't look like it moved. But that's the thing. It's just, it's so undignified being in my position because I literally had to stalk him down on the internet, um, mm. <laughs> which isn't nice. It isn't. It, it feels wrong and it feels, um, you know, against the real sort of basic human right, really. Yeah. And it does make me really cross. I mean, I can laugh about it now because I've, I had a good outcome, but so many people don't. But I sent a letter, recorded delivery. It was signed with the correct signature, with the correct surname, sorry. And within four days, I'd, I'd had a response. Um, Goodness, that seems... Yeah, <laughs> all that time. And then... Yeah, and it, it was a measured response, but it was, and every word in it was considered, 
really well written letter. But in that, he said that technically I had two half sisters and a half brother, which are his children. Um, and he also said that he he wasn't surprised to learn about me and that he did wonder if there was ever any outcomes from his time donating. Um, yeah, so then I wrote back and um, and then waited four weeks, which was agonising for him to write back again. Mm. But long story short, we he's been really lovely and shared lots of family history with me. We've met in person. I look so much like him. It's ridiculous. <laughs> There's just no denying, you know, the 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 genetic links yeah. there and the paths that me and his three children have taken in terms of our interests and careers are just mind-blowingly similar. So that part's been really easy. Um, I've become really fond of them really quickly, which obviously puts me in a quite a vulnerable position, but yeah, I'm yeah. trusting that this is all going to be okay. Um, mm -hmm. So, so have you met your half-siblings as well? Have, yes. I mean, what was that like, meeting both him and your half-siblings? It was, it, was, it was one of those, it was like one of those big days in your life, like your wedding day or the day your children are born. And I, it, it just, I will always remember it. And I think at every point, every letter I receive, every message I receive or photo that I've got, I pause and feel really, really grateful that I've experienced this because I've got so much validation from what I have learned about myself from these people. And I know that has been um, amplified by the fact that I've always had such a small family and that the family I did have didn't really look like me or have similar interests and things. Mm -hmm. But the day that we actually met for the first time was really, really beautiful summer's day. It was like, <laughs> it was like picture perfect. Like the, the place they'd chosen to meet me was beautiful. <laughs> um, and just the emotion of that day, because it just felt so precious and important. And and they were all just really lovely. They were all just really, really lovely. And it would just felt normal. Like we just had a really, really long lunch. And I guess the reason I was there was not really the center of the discussion. We were just getting to know each other, yeah. Um, and it all just felt really normal. I mean, they just—they're just really nice people, and I think I've been lucky in that sense that they—they've been open to this. And and obviously, I'm the first one. I don't know if I'm the only one. That's another point to come to. <laughs> but yes. yeah, yeah. it's it was an, it was a magical day, and 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 again, it's there are lots of voices within you know the infertility arena and and you've got the fertility industry you've got infertile couples or same-sex couples or um people wanting to have a family and then and all the different ways 
that that can happen. And obviously laws and attitudes are changing, but the reason I like to tell my story is because this is my story and and I cannot imagine that I, that was, <laughs> there was somebody somewhere decided that I should never have those experiences. And that really hurts. The yeah. fact that I've met these people and they exist and that we've been able to begin to build these kind of relationships. How was that ever denied to me? <laughs> Is the kind of, I do get quite frustrated about that. Mm. And I see it day in, day out in, in the community where people have just been denied that experience. Yeah. And it's the awareness of a whole another level of loss within this yeah yeah so I I mean I wrote a post I, I wrote quite a lot at the beginning of my journey and I wrote a post I remember being absolutely emotionally beside myself whenever I listened to Anthony Johnson's um I hope there's someone or um she's my sister I can't remember the exact name of that but um those two songs used to absolutely go to the core of me of just sobbing of just the intense emotion of the desire to be somebody's sister mm. and that was before I knew I was stoner conceived that that would always those songs would always get me absolutely oh gosh so yes. that was that was like a soul it really Longing felt like you, a kind of soul know. universe, mm. something guiding me. And I remember writing a post about that before I found my biological father and my half-siblings. And, and to think, you know, that that was a desire that I'd had. And then suddenly <laughs> I have these half-siblings. But again, it's like, well, how much ownership that's the wrong word but how much am I allowed to call them my half siblings you know like I'm not known to it's not you know we're not friends on social media I'm, I'm careful not to mention their names it's like a weird scenario yeah. where I feel such a deep connection on these people I've met a couple of times and and I feel so such kind of there's the genetic mirrorings there, you know, we have the same eyebrows and, <laughs> you know, then it's just, you can see where I can't really even find the words, it just becomes a, a real kind of... It's like they're kind of in reach, but you yeah. still can't have them totally... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, Maybe. You know, I'm still, and it's, you know, and that's the thing where I think there's not enough language to be able to deal with this kind of scenario. And I guess it comes up in, you know, adoption stories and other NPE stories mm -hmm. where I will always be on the outside. So there's obviously, obviously I'd love to have had siblings growing up and I didn't. And that's, that's the way it was. And that's absolutely can't change that no. um, but now I have these siblings but obviously I don't have the history with them yeah I didn't grow up with them 
So we're starting from now, which is fine. But I guess it's it's just it's yeah, it's this kind of it's this being severed from and the disconnect and the betrayal and the kind of the heritage. It's all just it feels like I've lost it feels like I've lost a lot. But at the same time, I've got these new relationships now. I guess maybe it's because of like the, you know, the cultural paradigm that we grow up in and our cultural understandings of family and, you know, stories and literature and movies. So much importance is put on family and that kind of blood tie. Yeah, I, I guess it, I do just find myself feeling sad that that it's taken this long for me to learn this about myself mm, yeah. and to know these other people exist. I think that's what it is because it's it's not I'm so grateful that I'm having this opportunity now and perhaps it was always supposed to be now that it happened and there's never any point in <laughs> going back and you know wishing things had happened that you know couldn't have done. But it's it's hard. It's it's a hard sort of existence to kind of to kind of process constantly because of the language and 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 because of who you are and and what your life is like. It it becomes complex. <laughs> let's say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and still very much living your life off center. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you know, and I'm. I'm developing a really lovely bond with, with these half siblings and I'm very fond of them, but there's quite possibly others. And I think yeah. that's another thing that is, is not really understood in terms of the, the psychological distress, the possibility of having a large number of siblings or an unknown number of siblings and never be, maybe never finding them all. So I live with this unfinished loop where I'm going to be possibly finding half-siblings for the rest of my life and I will never know if I've found them all. And that experience and that burden falls on the shoulders of, of the donor-conceived person. They become yes. a bit of a gatekeeper to, to any new half-siblings that might pop up. And I guess each time a new one does pop up, if any pop up, then that again shifts the dynamics. Yeah, it will again shift of everything. It will re bring back the trauma. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it will obviously shift dynamics for the for my um biological family, it's all very well me coming along. But what if there's another seven of me? Yeah. <laughs> that will change things for me and that will change things for everybody and I think everybody if you if you're a, if you have a brother or a sister that's a precious thing I know not all biological families get on that's not I'm not being rose tinted here but you know the experience the general experience of having biological family is that you're there for each other there's this kind of bond and 
you can't reasonably have a relationship with 15 siblings, <laughs> 30 siblings. And these are the, you know, the kind of sibling numbers that that the fertility industry is allowing, the, the regulated industry is allowing. I know somebody within my circle who has been told by the HFEA that they have 30 siblings born in the um, 90s, but yeah. they've only found... So can we just backtrack? What's the HF? EA just the human fertilization and embryo authority um so they were brought in um sort of 1990 91 to regulate the fertility industry um so, so when you, now, when your donor donated that was pre-regulation pre-regulations yeah so there was more of a kind of a voluntary licensing authority before that and right. um Miraculously, most records have been destroyed by fire, storm, or flood. Um, mm. They just they don't exist. But yeah, from 1991, um, there was the HFEA Act brought in, and the HFEA was established. So if you were born at some point in 1991 onwards, you can apply to the HFEA um, to get some non-identifying information about your donor. Um, okay, so that would perhaps be ethnicity, age, that kind of thing. That kind of thing, yeah. They're six foot four and played badminton, that kind of thing. Right, yeah. And, yeah, and it will also tell you how many live births they were and what year. Um, so you can get that information if you're slightly younger than me. So, yeah, people are in the situation. I mean, I don't have that information to apply for so it's just an unknown for me yeah. but um this this other donor conceived person that's um within my circle yeah they applied and they've got 30 but have only ever found three and i just, I just think that it's psychologically that finished link like that unfinished mm. loop sorry is just psychologically really quite damaging because it never goes away and with the commercial seasons, um, you know, the popularity, Black Friday, Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day, when these things go on sale in the um, within the donor conceived community, it's known as sibling season. And you okay. get, a, you know, that's when your potentialities of a new sibling popping up might be. Yeah. Um, there's all these things that you kind of have to manage when you're in a situation like this that I think isn't quite understood or thought about you know on a human level mm. um, on a human connection level because each time somebody you know a half sibling pops up and they might not want to know you they might find it all too much they might not believe you they might just think you're a scam artist um there's just all these opportunities of just lost um familial connections or relationships that could be or um rejection that rejection is, is, is played out time and time again in our situation. And, and it's not, we've put, got ourselves, we're in these situations that none of us asked to be in, find ourselves shouldering all the emotional burden of our parents and the donor and their families and these new half-siblings that pop along. And it just, it becomes a real kind of, 
it, it's a it's a big pressure and and it's you can see how people do shut the door on it because where does it end yes <laughs> um, yeah. and is rejection it, more more common than exception what i see yes and i think that comes from a place of fear so yeah. i would you know one of the reasons why i've i talk so openly about my experience is because hopefully others can see that we're human <laughs> and yeah. that yeah. you know that kind of the way that i put it to um my donor in one of the letters was that you know i'm here to i'm hopefully here to kind of enrich your life i don't want I don't need anything from you in that sense, you know. I just life is throws us curveballs and let's just see where this goes. Let's just be really honest and curious with each other. And and hopefully I will bring something to our existence <laughs> rather than draining you of anything, you know. But so often it's just people don't reply to letters. People get injunctions put on them, harassment orders. Really? Um, and really, we just have this desire, and it is this kind of can't always rationalize why we need to know this information, but it's it's the kind of information that lots of people just take for granted. And I think if you don't have that, until you don't have that, you don't realize what part it take it takes in terms of who you are and 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 where you belong in the world you know and, and the idea of of being somebody's big family secret do you know like I don't want to be the skeleton in the closet no, <laughs> you know, no. nobody wants to be somebody else's skeleton in the closet and you are that and and to be defined by that hurts because as you say you didn't ask to be in that position <laughs> no no, and it's, it's and you've done nothing to engineer being in that position either. No. That's yeah. No, and and the argument, argument, the, the, the argument I sometimes hear is, but there's always been NPEs, um, people that um, have like a mis misattributed parentage, people right. that are product of affairs or adopted or all sort. You know, this is this has gone on since the beginning of time. You know, this is not new. But I think the, the stark difference with donor conception to kind of human error or just human relationships and, and how those all work out is that this is an industry yeah. that is putting us in this situation. And I think that that is where it sits a little bit more uncomfortably with, with me in that somebody somewhere has made the decision that it's okay to sever you from any kind of genetic history. I mean, there's been so much research, you know, psychologically and um, in DNA um, about how, how, you know, there's always the environmental aspects of course there is, but there is definitely a hell of a lot of um, research that, that does back up how important your DNA is in terms of creating who you are. I'm just thinking, you know, even from something like a, a health point of view as well, that actually you may have seen 
your dad sort of presenting with various medical conditions and you know think well okay mate you know am I going to be susceptible to those and yeah. I you that know really... got a genetic risk to that but actually no you haven't and that yeah you know, that can that was a really big relief actually because of my my dad's health issues I really did think that that was the way I was heading and there was a really big and the fact that his mother was abusive as well I was like god is she she's my grandmother how can she be so evil if I got that evil in me you know mm. um so that was a relief you know this and the, you know and the one thing I will say is that in my experience this has not been I'm not I don't want to sound like I'm whinging and moaning about being in this situation there have been some absolute silver linings to this I am so glad I know I am so glad I know I just want it to be easier for us to know I want I want historical recipient parents to tell their adult children if this is their truth so I just want a better outcome for donor conceived people because I just feel so validated and so much more aware of who I am and just by knowing this about myself, yeah. which it's my truth to know. Um, and you say about the the health issues, there's some really high profile cases where, where people have died because they didn't know their mm -hmm. genetic heritage. There's um, Norel in Australia who had um, a genetic form of bowel cancer. Um, the laws in Australia changed to, you know, in her name. Um, okay. Make it much easier for um, for people to find out their genetic origins in the state of Victoria. That happened seven years ago. Um, in in the UK, there was a woman called Alison Davenport who needed bone marrow, I believe, transplant, and none of her immediate family were the right match. So she, the really public campaign to try and find her sperm donor. It didn't happen and, and she died. So it does, you know, some really, you know, there's people living in the community. I know lots of people living with auto um, autoimmune disorders and all sorts of things they've inherited from the donor's side. So there really mm. is, aside from the, the human connection and that kind of will, who am I question that I tend to really focus on, that kind of, sense of belonging identity and who you are in the world which is a thread that I that feels really really important to me there is absolutely the practical health level of there's just a real abdication of responsibility in these processes in terms of following up if people develop you know health conditions that they need they must tell the clinic yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that this information can get passed on or if a donor's, you know, if a donor's got two brothers that die of heart disease before they're 50, then that kind of information needs to be fed back. I just think that the whole, the whole problem that's been created around the use of donor conception practices is, is the secrecy. And, you know, the, there needs to be so much more openness and transparency. And I think that if people are uncomfortable with that, then you really need to think carefully about what you're doing. You are yes. creating life. Yeah. And if if you're uncomfortable, you know, that is what you're doing. And the needs of that donor conceived person need to come first in all of that, which is what isn't quite happening at the moment, but hopefully will in time. And I think that the 
boom of direct consumer DNA testing has really been that completely unconnected to the industry, obviously, has allowed us, it's allowed people of unknown parentage and donor conceived people and adopted people. It's given us the tools to find out the information that we so desperately want and need ourselves. Yeah, yeah. That is really shifting the landscape here because it's a really hard existence and it can be really troubling and it's full of so many difficult emotions and loss that thank goodness these big commercial companies came along and that this was not their intention this is not their intention to suddenly arm us with all these tools no, no. it's been a byproduct <laughs> of it and we're all really you know grateful for that actually um i mean they're making a lot of money out of us but yeah, um, yeah. there was just wasn't anything to to really to really kind of help us find our our answers before is there any support on those testing companies that you know that they offer in turn or even you know even at the bare minimum sort of signposting you know if you if you get a report back that is something truly unexpected like yours <laughs> there is um so it's thought between six and ten percent of people that do those direct consumer dna right. tests it's one in ten isn't it you know, that's actually, you know, look at your, your own sort of circle of friends. <laughs> I've got more than 10 friends. So actually, yeah. 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 So between six and 10% get some kind of DNA surprise. And so it's it's high. It's a big numbers. Mm. Um, and there, there has already been calls for these companies to do more. It does flag up when you go through the process of uploading your information. It does say. Um, and the signposting is there. I personally would like the signposting to be better. And, and I think that, again, is why I want to set up this organisation, a charitable organisation, because there isn't anyone that represents the um, donor-conceived person in the UK. So I would absolutely love to get to a point where we've established an organisation and we are signposted from the likes of Ancestry and Heritage.com yeah. and 23andMe, that we are the go-to and that people can find us. Um, at the moment, we've got the donor conceived register, which was set up for people born before the HFEA was established. And it is a voluntary DNA register, but it's tiny. But before direct consumer DNA testing, that's what we had. And so it's, it's the register that exists, but the numbers on it are so small that the chances of finding a match on there are are quite minimal because i think there's you know there's there's, a, there's hundreds of people on there whereas on the big commercial sites mm. there's millions we um obviously i'm the chair of the um of the registrants panel for that register but the previous chair to me um he's really built a, a community around the register so we have a website and a, a, a hidden Facebook group where we support each other. And that's been opened up to anybody that's donor conceived. You don't have to be on the register, which can be quite expensive. And also, if you were born post 91, we've opened up our support group for, for them as well. 
so really our name doesn't really suit who we are anymore so what we're hoping to do is create this new more general donor conceived support organization that will focus on educating others around the experience of being donor conceived and also create a, lit- a library of resources so that anybody affected by donor conceived practices whether you're parent was a donor or your son or daughter was a donor you know anyone that is affected whether you're a historical recipient parent you know that will create some kind of educational hub to educate you know educate clinic staff yeah patients counseling at the very beginning of these people's um, conception stories and and really create something that's uh, a support network, peer-led support for people going through this lifelong journey of of finding out that you're donor conceived and, and how you process that throughout your life because your emotions will change and your curiosity might change or, you know, it doesn't, your story of being donor conceived does not stop when you find who your donor is. Still, you still live with the implications of this misattributed parentage forever. You know, things come up all the time <laughs> that are, you know, that are laid in with everything else that life throws at you. But that is, you know, really shaped by by how you were conceived. You know, the signposting, if you find out you're donor conceived, um, or even if you've always known you're donor conceived, but then as you get older, maybe get curious about your origins. Finding information out online in the UK is not particularly straightforward. So is that so, in finding out like support information? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can find it in, in a roundabout way, but we're hoping to simplify that. So yeah, so signposting from the HFBA, signposting from DNA sites and those sorts of things. There's been a big research project. It's still ongoing. Um, it's with the University of Manchester at the moment called Connected DNA. And they are studying the impact of direct-to-consumer DNA testing on donors, their families, and donor-conceived people. Um, so that's a really big um, research project that will give us some answers as to possibly how the laws should change and, mm. and whether direct to consumer DNA testing companies should be doing more I don't feel that it's their responsibility as such to just because they have unearthed some secrets and malpractices from a an industry I think it should be the industry that are held accountable not the makers of this technology um Without them, I wouldn't have found my biological father. So I'm just, I do hold them on a bit of a pedestal. Yeah, I'm, no, absolutely. But I would have been stuck in a, and that's one of the, the things that, you know, my mum, I have my children quite young. I have my children in my early 20s. And I really wish my mum had told me then. Mm. Not only for the, you know, the fact that I was giving the wrong medical information to medical professionals about my own children but also just it's time maybe my early 20s I'm a mother now that maybe that was when I was mature enough to to know but then we've kind of spoken about it and it's it's a point where we sort of still agree to disagree on that um and obviously we can't go back in time but 
if I had have been told then, I would have had 15 years of not knowing and seeking and searching yeah. and yeah. trying to find what I didn't have, what I'd lost, what I, what I, finding anything about myself. And actually, I don't know what that would have done to me. That could have really worn me down. So I am very lucky in that it all happened quite quickly to me, for me. Um, I'm only now two years into my discovery and the information with, with the internet and, and DNA was very easy to find, actually. I so trusting that, is, that it, it happened. And, and maybe that you feel so driven to set up this charity and to to be this kind of voice to to make things as easy or as fair for for anybody else going through this you know I mean maybe that's what the uh, universe had in store for you when it well, <laughs> sorted yeah. out the timing <laughs> yeah, that, yes um I've done quite a lot of personal development over the years and a few things a few readings and things that I've had <laughs> have kind of said that that yes really <laughs> quite niche <laughs> and I'd have to speak about it so yeah wow gosh maybe, maybe that is the truth that's amazing <laughs> isn't it and you, you know, would never have thought in a million years it would be it would yeah. be this in human design I'm a projector so you, and I have to wait for the invitation so yeah all those years of you know because I spent a lot of time in my personal development, I'd really lost who I was. I'd, you know, I'd been a mum really young. I'd got really stuck in administration jobs. I'd really lost myself in my career. And then my dad died. So I was at a real low ebb. And I just didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't know what I liked. Didn't know what brought me joy. Just did not know what I, where I was. And so I'd, I'd built these, this kind of, I'd started, I trained as a coach and, and it was all around being you know around belonging and identity and and feeling at home in myself and and then I got this revelation and it's like I've just sort of pivoted and gone well this is still really about belonging and home and making a home in yourself and 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 who we are you know so it is it all does feel quite weird (laughs) timing wise um what would you say has been the biggest lesson that you've learned from all of this that takes you forward or guides your life? I think there's a lot of there's a lot of gratitude that I feel and I and I pause a lot to really process each thing that happens and each experience and really think about what it means. So there's a lot of gratitude for the validation that I've learnt from exploring all of this. But it's also given me a kind of a freedom of the things that I thought I was that I'm not. It's kind of taught me that lesson where that I can be who I want to be. So it's kind of been allowed me to kind of have a bit of a, a rebirth as well, which mm. I didn't need to have. <laughs> You know, you can do that at any stage anyway, but it's it's absolutely given me that lesson. And and it definitely gave me the lesson to um to trust in life and just trust that the universe has 
got your back and 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 knows and knows what your purpose was because I remember I did quite a lot of work with a with a therapist and um with my coach at the time and I genuinely got to a place where I was really accepting of who I was I was a donor conceived person didn't know my biological father and I was exploring all these things and sitting with all the emotions and that was okay and that was my in my acceptance of that's where I was I might not get any answers I might not get acceptance I might not get I might be rejected and that I shouldn't take that personally and I genuinely got to that point which just like you know this is who I am two days later the letter the second letter from my biological father um which was really long with all this family history and loads of stuff about his life and, and everything turned up so as if I'd gone this is okay whatever happens I'm okay yeah. and then once I got that then the universe went there you go now you can have the letter yeah <laughs> so yeah it's it's a, it's a trust in life it sounds like you've got cracky a, a massive project ahead of you but such a worthwhile project yeah I mean, I'm I'm acutely aware that I am building on the legacy of of many donor conceived advocates that have been trying to amplify our voices for decades mm. And I'm just coming along now, grabbing the baton, and I will carry it for as long as I've got the energy. Yeah. <laughs> but I could see that this is what needed to happen. Like we we were do already doing a lot of the support, and and a lot of it was just to do with signposting, and the advocacy were obviously going to be much stronger if we're a body and a proper organisation. Mm. So it was just kind of you know doing the official bits, making it a legal organization because then you have some weight then when it comes to consultations and you know perhaps influencing future legislation that comes around this and putting the the donor conceived person actually at the at the heart of this because that's what it's about isn't it you know the the industry is creating a a human life in there and that needs to be at the heart yeah. Of everything that they do. Oh, yeah, funny you should say that because if you read the HFEA press release to do with their consultation that they've just launched for changes to the HFE Act, they put the patient at the heart of the fertility process. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So yeah. the HFEA is there to regulate clinics and to ensure the patient experience is the best it can be so really their job ends at the conception so there's no wonder (laughs) really the industry that's built up around that doesn't focus on on the human that's that's created because it's not in their remit they're not regulated to do that so anything they do do is you know it's 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 a kind of a voluntary authority it's not statutory um and they yeah, and I think that's where the fight has always been, and that's where the gap is in terms of representing our voices. Um, and that's all we can do is 
is tell our stories and and everybody's donor conceived story is is different um yes. and and people have different feelings and that's all valid but it's it's just making sure that there is space and that the policymakers the researchers the media get an opportunity to to hear the stories the real life stories and experiences of what it's like to be donor conceived mm. and you know it's about an equaling of the voices because um it, we we know from the platitudes that we get from the person in the street that that it is the the parents want a need and desire for a child which is valid and the fertility industries supply and demand we're doing a good thing making families kind of message that gets the airtime and this is the recent thing that we've been given this agency to to find out our own truths but they're coming thick and fast you know there's been some amazing books written coming out of America and Australia some really really interesting research-based books but also kind of memoir style books of, yeah. of people's stories um, there's more and more increase in the media. So it is coming out into major, uh, into the mainstream media, slowly but surely. Um, and and where can people do. go for support? What, where would be, you know, if somebody got that, you know, got that letter or that email from, from one of these DNA companies, where, where can they turn to just immediate? I would recommend they find us. Um, so we're the donor conceived register.co.uk. Um, and if you go on there and you'll find our email address, um, there's loads of information on that website. And we are the community that's built up around the donor conceived register. The register itself is run by Liverpool Women's Hospital, NHS Trust, out of the Hewitt Fertility Clinic. So there is some confusion, you'll probably find two. Um, <laughs> but if you find that you'll always find your way to us um, eventually. Um, and we answer lots of queries over email. We have our own Facebook group, which is really active and supportive. And any one of us will personally kind of support anybody through any of this, because our, our, you know our community is full of people that are at every stage of their journey. And we, we know <laughs> what that feels like. So whether you're, you know, and we take um, inquiries from, you know, recipient parents or historical donors, we're there. Um, and, and hopefully in time, um, by the end of this year, we hope to be the community itself. We hope to have a new name and be present and more obvious online <laughs> yeah. so that we can continue to do what we're doing really and build on that um, with different projects and events and yeah just continue to grow really oh fabulous well I wish you every success in uh, in getting that off the ground and growing it and hopefully begin to find that that full circle of of your identity as well so thank you so much for coming on and, and well, sharing every, your story every time that I share my story I hope that one more person hears it and that they tell somebody else and that you know gradually 
more and more people will be told of their truth and in turn that will help the existing donor conceived people because they will find their half siblings um <laughs> is yeah. my kind of theory anyway and you know that will always be at the bottom of my that will be driving me I just feel like I want if I've got a half siblings out there I want to find them I hope you do thank you oh, thank you Laura Pleasure. Well, thank you, Laura. I certainly learned loads about a whole topic I really knew nothing about. If you've been affected in any way by this episode, please reach out for support from the Donor Conceived Register, details of which will be in the episode notes. I hope you found it useful. I'd like to thank everyone who supports me in the creation of this podcast, to Jamie Farrell for the beautiful music, and finally, of course, to you, the listener. Thanks so much, and I'll be back soon with another lesson from Lost.